Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Aaron and the band for leading us. I want to say good morning to all of you. Thank you for joining us online this morning. I've got to say, this is the first Sunday where I've really felt like my hair, my quarantine hair, is in full effect. And so, and not so much with Adam, though. Adam's hair looks good. And so, Adam, if you're cutting your hair on your own, can you come over to my house and get me a haircut, too? Because trust me, if this goes on much longer, this is going to turn into a mullet, and you guys do not want to see me in a mullet. It's not a good look for me. I've had it before. It's just really bad. But hopefully you are doing a little bit better with your quarantine hair. In fact, as I'm thinking about this, I think it'd be a great thing for us to actually have a quarantine hair competition online. And so you may have noticed uh, that we have a North Stays hashtag on our social media sites. So on Facebook and Instagram, we have hashtag North Stays. People have been posting great videos and pictures of what they're doing at home. Maybe we can do this week a competition with quarantine hair and quarantine beards. So take a picture of your quarantine hair, send that in, or post that with North Stays as a hashtag, tag North Bible Church in that as well, and we'll have a little competition on this. And I don't know what you win if you actually win the thing. Maybe we'll send you like a brush or like hair product or something, but let's have some fun with this. So we have a chance to kind of see how everybody's doing uh, as we're away from each other. But um, getting down to business this morning, we are now in week three of our new series called Crucial Questions, where we have been asking and answering some of the most frequently asked questions about Christianity, about the Bible, about faith and culture. And a lot of those questions have come from you through our website. And so we're really thankful for you guys as you've responded to this series. We've got some great questions that we're going to be answering throughout this series. But of course, we've been focusing on what it looks like to answer those questions from a biblical perspective. In other words, what does God have to say about these things. Not necessarily what our opinions are, what our perspectives might be, but what, as much as we can see from what Scripture has to say about these topics, what does God have to say about it? And so these first three weeks have been about establishing how we can go to God's Word for the answers, and so it makes sense for us to establish, of course, whether or not the Bible is a trustworthy source. In other words, what the Bible, for what the Bible claims to be, can we believe that the Bible is what it claims to be. And so when we looked at the very first work we week, we talked about the purpose of Scripture. And we talked about the purpose of God's Word being that it is God's words to us that is the one true story of everything that exercises authority over our lives and over the world as our Creator. It has the power to change our lives, and it has the power because it is living and active to impact us in a real way. And so from the first week now, we've moved on to these next two weeks of answering the question of whether or not we can trust the Bible to meet those claims. In other words, can we trust the Bible in terms of the claims that it makes about itself? So before we get started today, I just want to say this at the front end of all this. I, I know that this stuff can be very heady and deep theologically at times. And so it can be often difficult to understand depending on what we're talking about. And this is why I said last week when it comes to things like biblical studies and biblical apologetics, there are a few of us who just don't want to really study it or engage with it. But I want to encourage you, if that's you, I want to encourage you to at least try to engage with it, even the difficult stuff. Because I feel like when we do that, it stretches us, and it stretches us really in the right way. Because Christians have often been accused by skeptics and non-Christians of not using their minds when it comes to theology and not really having reasonable explanations for why we believe what we believe. 
And I hope you're seeing over these couple of weeks that there are reasonable explanations for why we believe what we believe. Of course, we're also told to love God with our minds in the Bible, and so we should be able to interact with what God's words have to say from an intellectual perspective, and also be able to engage non-Christians and skeptics and people who are asking questions with a reasonable explanation for what we believe. Now, this doesn't mean we all have to be seminary graduates, but I think there's a certain extent to where we should all know certain things about how to respond reasonably about our faith. And so in the end, the point is, of course, not to just know the Bible intellectually. The point is that for those of you who do believe in the Bible, that you can trust it even more. And as you begin to trust it even more, that you'll even cherish it and value it more and more in your life. And for those of you who don't believe in the Bible, maybe you're not Christians yet, we want to invite you to continue to consider the claims of Scripture. And maybe this will lead you to a place where you feel like you can rely on what the Scriptures have to say. I got to say, after the first sermon that we did in this series, I had somebody respond to me and say, you know, after listening to that, it has made me become even more, more excited about reading the Bible than I already am. And I got to say, there's no better response to a sermon than hearing that. That is exactly what these messages are designed to do. They're designed to increase your love and your appreciation for Scripture so that you can meet God there through His words. So, not every week is going to be like these past few weeks. So, hang in there with us. And, uh, and, and maybe things will get better, especially maybe even today things will get a little bit better as we continue. So, with all that being said, last week we started to answer the rather broad question of can we trust the Bible? And if you remember, we boiled that down into five specific questions, and these are often the five uh, most frequently cited questions and objections that skeptics have about whether or not we can trust the Bible. And so I want to review those questions for you this morning as we defined them last week. The first question is this, are the translations of the Bible that we have today reliable? Second question is, how do we know that the books of the Bible are the right books? Third is, are the authors of these books reliable as truthful, historical, and biblical writers? Question four is, did the events that are recorded in the Gospels really happen, especially the miracles and the resurrection account? And then finally, question five, the one that ties this whole thing together, the one that we're all building up to, is can we trust that Jesus is who the Bible records him to be? Now, if you were with us last week, you know that we answered the first two questions last week, addressing particularly the reliability and the trustworthiness of the biblical text in, what, in a process that we introduced with a term called textual criticism. But we did, we did this by looking at the evidence that we have for modern translations of the Bible and whether or not they're reliable, and if the books that we have been given in our Bible were actually supposed to be in our Bible from the beginning. If you didn't get a chance to hear that message yet, you can go online or you can listen to our podcast. That's really part one of what is part two today, and so we're not going to have a chance to review all of that, so you can listen to it there. But what we're going to be talking about today is whether or not those human authors who wrote down those words in the New Testament are trustworthy in and of themselves. What were they actually trying to communicate? Were they telling the truth about what they saw? Can they be trusted, or maybe they were just well-intentioned but deceived? They thought they saw what they saw, but in reality they were being deceived or tricked in some way. Now, if you have your notes from last week, you may have noticed that I've changed the wording of question three slightly from last week as we answer it this week. Because last week it was all about can we trust the historical accounts and the authors to be good historical writers in that way. What we're looking at today is whether or not they are reliable, not just historically, but whether they are reliable biblical authors. 
And we're doing this in response to a question we actually received on our website this past week, which dealt with the question about whether the human authors actually believed that what they were writing were the word of God, whether or not it rose to the authority of scripture as they were writing it. In other words, did the, did, the, did the New Testament writers believe that they were just writing stories and eyewitnesses' accounts of what they saw? Or did they believe that, these, that writing these accounts were to be believed and to be used in the church in the ways that Scripture was to be used? So we're going to talk about that this morning as well. So here, the, here again is the question. Are the authors of these books reliable as truthful, historical, and biblical writers? First, let's focus on the historical reliability. When it comes to historical reliability, the first thing that we might ask is if the gospel writers were actually trying to record history. Was that their intention? Well, let's take a look at how Luke begins his gospel, the gospel of Luke, which is really the beginning of his two-part book, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which go together. Luke wrote them together, and they were designed to be read together. But Luke chapter 1, verse 1 says this. This is how he opens his gospel. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, you can say whatever you want about what Luke claims in the rest of his gospel and in the book of Acts, but I think after reading this, we have to assume that what Luke was trying to write was a historical account based on what he believed actually happened. Now, in chapter 3, we actually see Luke say, uh, in reference to Jesus' ministry, it happened during the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. And so what's he, what's he doing there? He's establishing an account of something that actually happened in real history. And it's almost like by saying the exact year in which it was happening, he's almost saying, like, you can come check me out. Other historians who want to question the validity of what's going on, you can look at other historical references and notice that mine matches up and mine holds water. Now, Luke obviously... I think, believed that the claims he was making historically held water. And like Luke, John also says a couple of important things that root his gospel in history as well. This is how John ends his gospel account, John 21, verse 25. Now there, were, now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And also from one of John's letters later on in the New Testament, 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 1, this is how he starts his letter. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So listen to what John says. He says, the things that we have seen, the things that we have heard, we have touched, we have felt. I mean, he uses almost as many possible sensory terms as he possibly can because he's saying, look, this is something we experienced, and now we are proclaiming it to you. We are eyewitnesses of all that has happened. So with John, as well as Luke, just as the other gospel writers did, they were presenting what they wanted their believers, or they wanted their readers, excuse me, to believe actually happened in history. Now, the next question then, though, is could it be that they were lying? I mean, maybe they were trying to invent a story or create this elaborate hoax. How likely would that be? Because that's certainly what some skeptics claim about our gospel writers. Well, I think it's very unlikely uh, for a couple of reasons that are actually rooted in history. First, 
when the early gospel writers were circulating their scriptures in the first century, there were still people around everywhere, thousands of people who either were around when Jesus was alive and teaching and during his ministry, or were people who were related to those people where the stories were told. And so if there was a hoax that was being perpetrated by all of these gospel accounts, right, then they, they would have been called on it immediately. There's no way a hoax like this would have made it through all of those checkpoints from generation to generation where it would have started a church of thousands of people that is still operating today 2,000 years later. But there's another reason. Secondly, we know from history that many of the apostles were executed for their faith and their claims about who Jesus was and what he had done. In other words, they were literally killed because they wouldn't change their stories about Jesus. And if you're perpetrating a hoax, you're probably going to give that up when you're being threatened with your freedom or threatened with your life. As Greg Gilbert says, nobody dies for a fiction and nobody dies for a hoax. If your goal in writing something was simply to write a novel or to, or to perpetrate a deception, you don't stick to the story once the jig is up and your head is about to come off. The only way you stick to the story under those circumstances is if you really believe that what you wrote actually happened. And that's exactly what we have in the people who wrote the New Testament. Even as they wrote and taught, they knew that they could be killed for what they were saying. And yet through all the threats and all the promises, even up to the moments of their own deaths, they kept on saying it. Now we just quoted from 1 John a couple minutes ago. That 1 John passage is a familiar one in terms when it comes to talking about the eyewitness accounts of the apostles. But here's one thing to remember about 1 John. 1 John is one of the latest, one of the chronologically one of the latest letters written in the New Testament. It was written somewhere around 95 AD. And here's why this is important. At that point when John is writing his letters, Rome has had a long history of persecuting Christians, jailing them and killing them. In fact, to give you some perspective, Peter and Paul were killed about 30 years before 1 John was written by the emperor Nero. And so when John was writing these letters, he was very aware of the fact that just by writing these things, it could cost him his freedom or cost him his life. And in fact, it is probably one of the things that ultimately landed John on the island of Patmos, where he received the vision to write a second book, the book, or the third, fourth book, fifth book actually, the book of Revelation in the New Testament that he wrote. But so it seems pretty clear then that the biblical authors of the historical books believed that what they were writing in history, historical events that they believed that they saw were happening right in front of them. And that when they recorded these eyewitness accounts that they either saw them firsthand or they had them dictated to them by somebody who did see them firsthand. So other than the gospel writings, let's ask this question. Are there any other things that support the gospel historical accounts? Well, one thing that we know is that there are, are several other historians that operated during the time of the New Testament and the Roman Empire. A lot of them were secular, most of them were non-Christian. And we actually see several that corroborate the historical gospel accounts. And I picked just a sampling of them this morning collected from some of the historians of the time, guys like Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny, Lucian, and Suetonius. Make sure you got those down, there'll be a quiz later. But these are some of the things that they agreed on from their writings, just from outside sources looking in at Jesus, what he did, and looking in at the early church. First of all, that Jesus lived during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. We just saw that from Luke's gospel. Secondly, Jesus was known to be a wise and virtuous teacher. Jesus had a brother named James and was called the Christ. He was known to perform miracles. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Jesus had many Jewish and Gentile disciples. Those disciples believed that he rose from the dead. 
Jesus' disciples believed actually that he was God and meant regularly to worship him. And then finally, Jesus' disciples were willing to suffer and die for their belief in Jesus, and many did. These are outside, non-Christian, secular authors who observe the early church and observe what Jesus had did and corroborate exactly what we see in the gospel accounts and in the book of Acts. In the end, the gospel writers certainly believed that they were writing history, and not just history, but connecting to the true story of the redemptive story of God throughout Scripture. What they presented in a lot of cases was a fulfillment of what the Old Testament story was pointing to, which brings us to this next point, the question of whether or not these authors believed that they were writing with biblical authority. So did the biblical authors believe they were writing with the authority of Scripture? Well, really the only way to truly answer a question like that is that we have to actually look at what the authors said about what they believed they were writing. In other words, what was their purpose for writing what they wrote? Is there anything that we can read in the New Testament that tells us about that? So do we have anything that indicates that not only were they writing historical accounts, but were they specifically writing their writings to match up as Scripture? I think as we look closer at what they say throughout the New Testament, we see that we do have a lot of evidence from what the authors said they believed they were writing that matched up to the authority of the words of God. Let's begin with the gospel accounts. In a statement that's very reminiscent of 2 Timothy, telling us that all scripture is God-breathed through the Holy Spirit, in other words, that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspires and speaks through human authors God's words, John 14, 25 through 26 says this. This is what Jesus says to the disciples. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, it's very clear from what Jesus says here. One of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to, to teach the disciples all things and to bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus had taught them. Now, these are words, of course. This would come to them in words, words from God, to the, God the Spirit, whom they were to, those words then that they were to write down as a part of God's word. Now, we can say, a lot of us you know, believe that you know, the Holy Spirit spoke to authors in the Old Testament and that was what makes Scripture Scripture in the Old Testament. Well, the same thing happens in the New Testament. If the Holy Spirit speaks, the author of Scripture speaks through human authors, then this rises to the authority of the Word of God. So that when Paul says in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed, it matches up to what Jesus says here, I will teach you all things, or the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of what I said. To add to this, look what Jesus says and does to the disciples in John 20 and Matthew chapter 28, both of which are after the resurrection and before he ascends into heaven. He says this in John 20, 21 through 22. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says, Go th therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Look, when Jesus leaves, before he ascends into heaven, he leaves his disciples, he leaves them with his own authority as the one sent by the Father and the, one, and the, one who has, and the ones who have now the Holy Spirit. As he breathes on them, he is preparing them for what will happen at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But when the Holy Spirit comes to them, they will be able to then speak or write down or teach the words of God to generations that come after them as they disciple them and teach them to the very end of the age, all nations. So here's another thing, though. When it comes to the gospel accounts and the book of Acts, 
We see the author cite many of the, of the Jewish religious festivals, especially in Matthew and Luke. And in fact, they cite Old Testament references all over their gospels as well. And they use them to actually point to the fact that their gospels and what they're writing down about what Jesus is teaching is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament was saying. In other words, they're putting their writings directly on par with the Old Testament, actually saying that this is the rest of the story that the Old Testament was waiting for. And it's all seen in what Jesus is doing and saying. Now, we can also see this not only in the Gospels and not only in the book of Acts, but also in Paul's writing and in the writer of Hebrews. In fact, they interpret the Old Testament through their own Gospel teachings that they get from Jesus. If you look at Hebrews and especially Galatians, Paul and, and the writer of Hebrews, who were Jewish writers of these New Testament books, are interpreting the Old Testament religious teaching of the time, and they're pointing to what they are writing in the New Testament as fulfillment of that. This is why Paul can say things like, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that some, of you, some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, the one you receive from us, let him be accursed. Now listen to what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, even if an angel were to come to you and teach to you something different than what we have taught you, our words have more authority than that angel. I mean, you don't say that unless you believe you are writing the very words of God. And Paul adds a curse in there at the end just for good measure to say, if anyone tries to change what we've taught you, let them be accursed. Again, something you don't do unless you believe you have the authority to do something like that. Speaking of Paul in his letters, he often writes about the implications of the gospel, and he talks about how we should live as Christians. He talks about false teaching versus true teaching, and he does it in a way that's not just merely suggestive. He actually does it in a lot of ways as commands. These are things that the Lord commands of us. Listen to Galatians chapter 1, 11 through 12, a little further down from what we read just a minute ago. Now I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel preached by me is not based on human thought. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how much clearer we can be about what Paul believes his words actually are, other than words that came from a revelation of the Son of God himself. And when Paul is questioned by the early church, according to his, his, his authority as an apostle, which certainly happens like in places like Corinthians, um, he defends vehemently his authority as an apostle. And Paul's not doing this because he's an egomaniac or he just wants the title. He's doing it because he knows if his, if his authority as an apostle is discredited, his words will be discredited as well. And what's important is that they hear his words because, again, he believes they're the very words of God. Speaking of Revelation, Paul is not the only New Testament author who writes from a revelation. The book of Revelation itself, which is aptly named, is, which is written by John, as we mentioned earlier, this is how John opens up that book. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all who saw it. Now look, I think there's a lot more that we could say about different places in the New Testament where the New Testament authors affirm the fact that they are writing with the authority of Scripture. Um, but I think you get the point. The, 
it's not just about the historical events, but they believed that they were actually recording the words of God that were to be received with faith, with believing and saving faith, which of course brings us to our next question. And this takes us back to the question, did the disciples actually see what they thought they saw or were they deceived? In other words, did the events that are recorded in the Gospels really happen, especially the miracles and the resurrection accounts? So did those miracles that they record in the scriptures, in the gospels, in the book of Acts and other places, did they really happen or did they hallucinate in some way? Or were they just kind of being tricked by Jesus with illusions and magic tricks? Well, as you can imagine, when it comes to miracles, they are difficult to prove historically and they can't necessarily be measured scientifically either. And so this is certainly the point where many skeptics will check out. Because it's one thing to believe that certain events happened, that Jesus existed and that he taught and that he had disciples and that a church started from a group of followers in Jerusalem. I mean, these are all reasonable to believe. And as we covered before, they're all backed up by outside historical sources. However, when it comes to the miracles that Jesus performed and really the ultimate miracle that the Gospels talk about, which is the resurrection of Jesus, that becomes a little bit more difficult for people to accept. In fact, this is at the point where many skeptics will say this is where the Bible goes into fairy tales because miracles do not happen. People do not come back from the dead. As we saw last week, this is exactly what Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 15 to engage that discussion and that objection because the objection has existed since the very beginning of the church. But this usually comes from the fact that people who are skeptical of miracles have never experienced them. And it's natural for us to be skeptical, of course, of the things that we've never experienced. However, just because we haven't experienced something doesn't mean that that thing doesn't exist. You know, there's an often used example of a story about a man who is on an island, a remote island in Ecuador. And this is before any of the modern technologies of refrigerators and freezers. And on his, as he's on his island one day, a ship lands coming from the north. And all the men get off the ship and they begin to tell him about this wonderful substance that they engage with all the time called ice. And ice is actually a rock-like substance that is the frozen version of water. Now this man has never seen ice before and can't conceive of what ice is at all. And so he can assume that these men are lying to him. He can assume that they're crazy, that they're just imagining what they saw. And he can assume in the end that ice really doesn't exist. But we know that whether or not this man has experienced it or not, ice actually does, in fact, exist. Now, miracles have, also, have always been the most difficult part for skeptics to believe, so much so that there have been groups throughout history, like the so-called Jesus Seminar, who actually just believe all the Bible except they pull all the miracles out of their Bibles. The problem is that the Bible and miracles go hand in hand because Jesus' ministry and his miracles go hand in hand. Now, people often also object to the occurrence of miracles on the basis of science. This is a discussion maybe later on for the series when we talk about uh, science and the Bible, but I think what we can say this morning is that any honest scientist will recognize the limits of scientific theory and discovery as well. Because science can't prove everything, and sci scientific theories morph and change all the time as we have new discoveries literally every single day. But in any event, science has yet to prove there is no God. And if there is a possibility of a God, there is possibility of miracles as well. And no one, also, and no one either has proof of, uh, of whether the disciples saw that they didn't see what they saw, I should say. And so we should say if the disciples are trustworthy in other respects, in the other things that they have accounted for, it could be reasonable and it should be reasonable that they can be trustworthy about their accounts of miracles as well. 
Which again brings us back to the biggest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what you really, uh, Greg, Greg Gilbert says this, here's what you really can't get around. If the resurrection happened, then the rest of the fundamental superstructure of Christianity comes together like clockwork, including the authority of the Bible, both the New Testament and the Old. So then we have to ask this final question, which all of this has been leading up to. It's the penultimate question of whether or not we can trust the Bible. Can we trust that Jesus is who the Bible records him to be? Now, going back to the biblical account of the resurrection, there are two key proofs that the disciples had regarding the resurrection of Jesus. One was the empty tomb, and the other was the literal bodily, physical appearance of Jesus to them after he has, re- after he has died and been resurrected. Both proofs actually rely upon each other and they complement each other. Because an empty tomb without Jesus appearing could have meant that someone simply stole Jesus' body, like grave robbers or zealots or something, and disposed of it somewhere. So that doesn't prove the resurrection. Jesus appearing without an empty tomb, in other words, a tomb that is still sealed and not empty, could have been a hallucination, it could have been a spiritual experience, it could have just been another version of Jesus' body. But if Jesus' literal dead body did not rise from the dead, then that does not prove the resurrection. And so there needs to be an empty tomb, and there needs to be a physical appearance that Jesus made with his disciples. And of course, that's what we get in all four gospel accounts. Now let's remember, though, that before the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus, the disciples themselves were mainly skeptics and doubters, much more than they were believers who were willing to die for testimonies about a resurrected man. But the combination of these two events, the empty tomb and the appearance that Jesus made to them, changed everything for many of them, including famously doubting Thomas, who needed to physically touch the wounds in Jesus' side before he would believe it. N.T. Wright explains it this way. The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus in order to explain a faith that they already had. They developed that faith because of the occurrence and convergence of these two phenomena. In terms of the kind of proof which historians normally accept, the case we have presented that the tomb plus appearances combination is what generated early Christian belief is as watertight as one is likely to find. So maybe you're saying at this point, well, it was easy for the disciples to believe in the resurrection if they physically saw Jesus. I mean, here we are 2,000 years later. We haven't seen the empty tomb. We haven't seen physically resurrected Jesus. How are we supposed to believe in that? Well, Jesus addressed that very thing with his disciples. Right after Thomas touched Jesus and realized that Jesus was alive again, Jesus says in John 20, verse 19, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Of course, all of us are in a position today of having not seen. And this is actually what it all comes down to. After all of this discussion, after all these big theological words and apologetics argument, it comes down to this one thing, faith. It comes down to believing and trusting in something that we have not seen with our eyes. But hopefully we've demonstrated that this is not blind faith. We can trust in the fact that what the Bible says to us is true. But in the end, ultimately, it must come down to faith. And it's more than just whether or not we believe the Bible is true or not. This is about Jesus' claims to be the Son of God who is the Savior of the world. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, at the beginning in verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. In other words, this is all of it. Everything is at stake here. The gospel in which we stand, all of our salvation, all of our hope is bound up in this one event that Jesus rose from the dead, left behind an empty tomb, and appeared to hundreds of people whom Paul says as he's writing this to the Corinthians in the first century, many of them are still alive. You can go ask him. Go ask Cephas, who is actually the apostle Peter. Go ask him if you don't believe him. Now today we don't have those same apostles who saw Jesus resurrected, of course. We can't go and ask Cephas what he saw. But we have what those apostles wrote down for us as trustworthy testimony. And the same thing is required actually of salvation for us as was required of them in the first century. We have to believe it. There is no loophole to believing and saving faith. And remember that scripture's goal is ultimately to call faith from us, to trust in the God who gave us his words. Its primary purpose is actually not to be a document to be picked apart and examined to be proven or disproven. It's more of a personal love letter to humanity than it is a forensic court document designed to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. But in the end, the scriptures call out personal faith in God, and in order to believe that, we are relying on God's spirit to illuminate it for us, and as much as I appreciate biblical apologetics and all that we've talked about, we aren't argued into the kingdom of God. Only Jesus' salvation work does that for us. Now, we might say, as many skeptics do, maybe I'd believe if I saw Jesus. At least I could see physical evidence that would convince me. But I'd ask you, what would that evidence be? What would you need to see in order to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he has gone to the cross to save you for your, from your sins and that he has been resurrected so that you might have new eternal life with him. Because these are the same kinds of things that people said to Jesus when he walked the earth. Do this and I'll believe you. Perform this miracle and I'll believe you. Get yourself off that cross if you're really the son of God. Save yourself. In response, Jesus said that people who didn't want to believe could see miracles of whatever they asked for and they still wouldn't believe because they lacked faith. In the end, God wants you to trust him. After all, how much more do we need from God to prove himself. He has given us life, he's given us life as creations, he has given us his promises, he has given us his word, his son, his church, a promise of everlasting life. At some point, there's going to be a situation where somebody doesn't believe no matter what is done. And what it all comes down to then in the end is that Jesus is the same question that Jesus once asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? That is the ultimate question. And it's one thing to believe that the Bible might be true. I hope that we've been able to prove to you that the Bible is true. It, but it's another to believe that the gospel, because we have to believe something about ourselves if we believe the gospel of Jesus. Namely, that we are people who have sinned and are in need of salvation. That we don't write our own stories in life. God writes this story for us. And of all the big theological words that might lead us to one thing, do you believe that Jesus said and did what he did to save you and to reconcile you to God and to give you new life. 
That's the question for all of us. And I hope this morning that as we've reviewed the good news of what this all leads us to, that this would be an encouragement to all of us as we move through what we're moving through. Because look, as much as we all want to have answers to what we're dealing with right now, one of the reasons why we've tried to really point you to Scripture in these first three weeks is that you can look for answers anywhere in what we're dealing with. You can look in the media, you can look in social media, you can, you can ask a friend, you can look at whatever you feel like might give you these answers. But probably what you're, re- what you're facing right now is a time where you have run out, a place where you've run out of answers, if that's all you're looking at. What I want to encourage you with this morning is that the Word of God, the Bible, has God's words to you. It has the truth and it has the answers that you're ultimately looking for. And for those of you who believe it, I pray that that would be something that you dive deeper into during this time. You would find comfort and sweetness in the Word of God. And for those of you who don't believe it yet, I would encourage you to discover whether or not those answers are in Scripture and whether or not the words of God are true to you so that you can believe them. I want to encourage your response this week. If you would do this, I know that... um, you know, uh, for a lot of us, maybe we've engaged in this, but for some of us, maybe we've thought about it and we haven't done it, or maybe we've never even heard of it before. But I would encourage you this week to take on a discipline of journaling through God's Word this coming week. And journaling through God's Word sounds kind of complicated, but it's really easy. All it is is simply this. You open up Scripture, you get a pad of paper, you get something to write on, and you read Scripture, and you just begin writing out whatever it is that comes to your heart. It can be a prayer to God. It can be some kind of reflection that comes to you. But what that does is it allows God's word to get deeply into your heart so you can process it and you can respond right away. It also makes God's word personal. Again, I feel like we've been doing a lot of talking about the Bible as a truth document. But again, what we want to get you to is a place where the Bible becomes God's personal words to you. And I can think of few better ways to do that than prayer and journaling as we, as we make our way through God's Word. So I want to encourage you. Maybe you've thought about doing that before. Try to do that this week. You probably have some time to do that at home. Maybe a little bit more time than you might typically have to, to take this on. And so I want to encourage you to try that. Get some kind of journal. Just get a piece of paper. Pull out a piece of computer paper. Whatever it takes. And just begin writing as you read God's word in response. So let's pray this morning. I want to pray for you and pray for that process as we go forward. Lord, we thank you again that you have given us your word. As we've been praying over the past couple of weeks, Lord, you've not left us in the dark. You have given us your word as a light as the psalmist says, as a lamp into our feet. So that as we're working through a dark time right now, as we're in the fog and nobody has any kind of real answers to what we're dealing with, uh, people have guesses and people have speculations and people have predictions, but in reality, Lord, we know that none of those things are, are, are your truth and your word. And although you might not tell us exactly the date at which a pandemic might, 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 might pass or, or, or the time in which, you know, we're going to be able to meet together again and things will go back to normal, your word tells us the ultimate answers that we need to hear. And so, Father, I pray that we would be open to hearing the truth beyond just the truth. In other words, that we would be able to hear your voice calling us beyond just the things that we're searching for right now. And maybe it's a good thing that we've been shaken up in so many different ways. I think sometimes it is. And so, Lord, would you shake us up and would you help us to latch on to the fact that it's okay to be shaken up because your word, your words to us, your promises to us give us stability. They give us a hope and they give us something that we can place our faith and our hope ultimately on. A faith that cannot be moved because it's based on your promises and your word which stands from generation to generation, and will stand eternally. Lord, as you have said to us through your word, it will accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it. 
And I pray that purpose would be to transform us, to love you more, and to trust you more as we move forward and as we engage with what you have to say to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thanks again for joining us this morning. I want to remind you as we continue through our Crucial Questions series, if you have any follow-up questions you'd like to ask, like we just did this week, we, we, we kind of incorporated one of our follow-up questions into the message today. We will certainly focus on doing that so you can continue to submit those questions online. Uh, we also, I'm going to be posting on our at-home resources page on our website some of the resources that I've mentioned just kind of in passing. In other words, books that if you want to do further research into apologetics or historical documents or those kinds of things that relate to the trustworthiness of the Bible, those resources are going to be up on our website if you want to take a look at those and read them for yourselves. Those books that I mentioned that are like this big in some cases, have fun with that. Knock yourselves out. Um, but, uh, but they're going to be up there in case you want to see that. Next week is Mother's Day. Can you believe it's already Mother's Day next week? And so we're going to do something special. with our. Uh, we're going to continue our Crucial Questions series, but we're going to answer it and present it in a way that's unique. We're going to have Kirsten Snary, who is on our staff, be a part of that message. And, and her and I are going to walk you through some questions that we've actually been asked through our website that relate to the uniqueness of, of, of who a woman is created in God's image. And of course, there's going to be a lot of things that we talk about as we honor our mothers next Sunday morning. So we hope that you guys will join us next Sunday. Until then, may God bless you and keep you, and we'll see you then. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.